Well, friends, we are jumping into a new teaching series at the beginning. Happy summer break, by the way. It started with a bang. Yesterday was really hot. It felt like summer. Yay, summer. I know because I was at the zoo for what felt like five hours. <laughs> it's very hot. <laughs> wasn't that long, but it felt like that. <laughs> very hot day. Uh, but after Easter, our Easter series, you know that we spent some time in a series called Rooted, where a lot of that we looked at the words of Paul in the book of Ephesians, where he was encouraging the church in Ephesus to be rooted and grounded in love. In the first half, often like Paul's letters, he's talking about the gospel and what Jesus did for us. And then the second half is really kind of instructions, uh, really kind of uh, directives, instructions on how to live as people that follow Jesus, how to live like Jesus. And so we saw that in the book of Ephesians. He said things like, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to walk in love, be rooted and grounded in love. And there was a section that we sort of touched on in Ephesians chapter 4, where he talks about how people who are choosing to follow Christ have put on a new humanity. It's the same symbolism and imagery that we see in baptism, right, of being cleansed and you rise anew and uh, you, are, you are a new creation. And Paul says that in the kind of the last half of Ephesians chapter 4, that you, if, you've, if you've thrown off the old self... And you've now put on the new self in Christ. No longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you in the new self. There's some things that are going to look different about you. There's some things that are going to be different about you, Paul says. This is verses 26. I don't have it on the slides yet. Oh, wow, I need that. It's actually going to work today because I already tested it. Uh, Ephesians 4, kind of the last half of verses 25 through 32. He says things like this. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Be angry, but do not sin. Let the thief no longer steal. Do honest work with your hands. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only what is good for building up, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. Be kind to one another. So he's basically saying if you take off that old self, that old humanity, and you're born again, new in Christ, you put on that new humanity, these sort of new humans, that, where that image of God is being restored, that instead of lying, these people will speak truth. Instead of harboring anger, these people will peacefully resolve their conflicts. Instead of, see, of stealing, these people will be generous. Instead of gossiping, new people in Christ will, be, will encourage and lift up. Instead of gratifying every impulse, new humans will cultivate self-control and submit to one another, and serve one another. And he also says this, instead of getting, this is, I'm going to read this next, but instead of getting sort of drunk on wine and other things, instead of being under the influence of those things, new people alive in Christ will become under the influence of the Spirit. New humanity. And in the beginning of chapter 5, he says this, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay. I even tested this out beforehand and it worked. Thanks, Micah. All right, so I'm going to read this starting in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, walk in love, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. 
Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for every, everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ." I, found it, I find it fascinating in this, in this passage right here when he says, you know, all, all, all of the things that we could be under the influence of, <laughs> whether it's physically or mentally, lots of different teachings, lots of different schools of thought, all of the things that we could sort of sit under the influence of, he's contrasting here. Instead of being under the influence of these things, you, new believers in Christ, alive in Christ, should become under the influence of the Spirit. You know, that Holy Spirit that's been poured out on all flesh, that gift of the Spirit that we celebrated last week at Pentecost when Jesus shows up amongst them and breathes, what was it? New life into them, like a moment of creation. The power given become under the influence of that Spirit. And the first thing that he describes of what it would look like for someone to be under the influence of, of, of the Spirit is singing together. Oh, it's gone. There it is. Thank you. <laughs> the first thing he says, verse 19, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always. It's sort of this image of both communal worship and personal devotion and worship, of personal praise, making melody with your heart. That's really surprised me. You think the first thing that would sort of indicate someone under the influence of the Spirit is song and worship and spiritual hymns. Under the power of this spirit, he's saying, you may be empowered to walk in love, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, being rooted and grounded in love. And we know from looking at each of our values and, and sort of being rooted together, and worship is really formative for us. We know this. We talk about this. That's why we're here. That's why we have gathered, not to check a box, but to be transformed, to be renewed by the Spirit, to become under the influence of God's Spirit. And so I thought it might be fun this summer to take a look at what in the world are these spiritual hymns? What would Paul have been referring to here? And oftentimes I like to go sort of like a summer storytelling type thing. Like we've done holy ghost stories. We've done like untold stories, like heroes of the faith. I like to look at the Old Testament because I feel like we don't always teach a lot in the Old Testament. The summer provides an opportunity to kind of be a little more laid back and like a more storytelling feel. And as I was thinking and considering this and kind of in line with Rooted and Pentecost and where we've been headed this year, I thought, let's just look, take a look at the Psalms. To spend a summer in the Psalms, really asking ourselves, what is a Psalm? How did the Hebrew people use the Psalms? What was it meant for? And how can they inform our faith and our worship today? How can they allow us to sing spiritual songs and hymns with one another, making melody to the Lord with our hearts and the power of worship? Because here, right in the middle of Scripture, we have this prayer book, this hymn—well, we're in a minute, we're going to learn that it's not really a hymn book, but there are poems and hymns and songs here— that informed the people of God and their faith and worship for generations and generations. And as we'll hear one week from Daryl, many of our worship songs that we sing today are inspired by the words of the Psalms. 
So I want to invite you. It's kind of, I know lots of people travel in the summer. Uh, I know, you know, we're not always here every single week. And so it's going to be, I thought, a good sort of survey of each week looking at a different type of psalms, how we can engage with that different sort of genre or type. But here today, this being sort of the basic introduction, an overview, if you will, an introduction to the Psalms, and throughout the next couple of weeks, asking some of these questions together. What role did they play for the people then, and what role can they play for us now? So I have a short video that I thought might be helpful. It's from the Bible Project, if you're familiar with it. And Micah, I'm going to go ahead and let you roll it. The Book of Psalms, it's a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers that come from all different periods in Israel's history. Many of these poems are connected with King David, 73 actually, and he was known as a poet and a harp player. But there are many different authors behind these poems. There's the poems of Asaph, or from the sons of Korah, and some are from other worship leaders in the temple. Even Solomon and Moses have their own poems, and nearly one-third of these are anonymous. Now, many of these poems came to be used by the choirs that sang in Israel's temple, but the book of Psalms is actually not a hymn book. At some point in the period after Israel's exile to Babylon, these ancient poems were gathered together and intentionally arranged into the book of Psalms before us. And it has a very unique design and message that you're not going to notice unless you read it from beginning to end. Now to see how the book of Psalms is designed, it's actually most helpful to start at the end. The book concludes with five poems of praise to the God of Israel, and each one begins and ends with the word hallelujah, which is Hebrew for a command to tell a group of people to praise Yah, which is short for the divine name Yahweh. Now, that's a really nice five-part arrangement, and it looks like someone's giving us a conclusion here to the book. So, it invites the question, does the book have any other signs of intentional design? If you pay attention to the headings of the poems, you'll notice that at five places, your Bible translators have the heading book one, book two, book three, four, and five at various points and that these divide the book into five large sections. Now the reason for this is that the final poem in each of those sections have a very similar ending that looks like an editorial edition. It reads something like, May the Lord, the God of Israel, be blessed forever and ever. Amen and amen. So the book has a conclusion. It has an internal organization into five main parts, and so the natural place to go from here is now the beginning, to look for an introduction, and what do we find? Psalms 1 and 2, which stand outside of book 1 because most of the poems in book 1 are linked to David, except Psalms 1 and 2, which are anonymous. Can you hear me now? There we are. Hello. I guess I did turn myself off. That's a longer video. It goes on for nine minutes. I encourage you to look it up. It's a really great overview of the rest of the books, books one through five. But today, what I want to look at are Psalms one and two, because they serve, as you heard, as the introduction to the whole book of Psalms. And we know it's intentionally sort of designed this way. Five books arranged. It's sort of a uh, 150 in total, as you heard, but it's sort of a collection of collections gathered over time, uh, over many different sort of historical moments for the people of Israel. 
And we can see from each of those kind of divisions of those uh, benedictions at the end that there's a clear division in each of these books. These five books are divided by these doxologies. They serve as conclusions. But, okay, the reason that books one and two are kind of separated out is because compared to Psalms one and two are separated out because compared to book one, those are all attributed to David. And so we can see how these first two can really serve as an introduction. And they set up some themes that we're going to see for the whole book of Psalms. So I'm going to read for us now Psalm 1. It's working now. (laughs) Thank you. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So just six verses, Psalm 1, we hear it celebrates a person who meditates on the Torah, the law of God, meditates on, Torah is the Hebrew word just for teaching, but of course we know it also indicates the first five books of the Old Testament, the the books of Moses, those first five books. And so in a way, these five books of the Psalms have this sort of liturgical counterpoint with the book of Moses. And this introduction right here in Psalm 1 is saying, celebrating, blessed is one who reflects on the Torah and meditates day and night. It's almost as if the Psalms are now being presented as a new teaching, a new Torah to mimic those first five to really serve as a prayer book for the people. It's almost as if the Psalms is being offered now as this new teaching that will teach God's people this lifelong practice of prayer as they strive to obey God's commands that were given in the first Torah. That's what they're trying to do, obey God's commands. Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel, not of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, but sits in the seat. And his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's sort of righteousness and wicked. That's the theme there of Psalm 1. We take a look at Psalm 2. This one's a little bit longer, but I am going to read it for us. This one's a little, uh, it's going to sound a little bit different, but you'll notice these are some of the themes that, as the video said, you don't quite pick up on unless you read through sort of in order. Uh, These two sound a whole lot different from even like 3 through 10. They're going to come right after it, and that's because they're set apart here to really set it up. All right, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break with them a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all you who take refuge in him. That's really confusing, I'm gonna be honest. There's a lot that's going on there that doesn't quite make sense upon your first reading. This is a poetic reflection here, this poem, Psalm 2, of God's promise to King David when God made a covenant with David back in 2 Samuel 7. So there's similar language used here. It's a poetic reflection of this promise God makes to David when he says, I will establish your kingdom. I will build a house for your name. I will establish this throne of the kingdom forever. Talking about King David. And and God promises David then, my steadfast love will never depart from you. And so this, this psalm too, this poetic reflection on this promise and of this kingdom that will have no end from this line of David, it's reflecting and celebrating this messianic king that, that one day would come and establish God's kingdom and defeat evil and rebellion among the nations. That's some of the other not-so-fun things we hear in Psalm chapter 2. It's actually celebrating the coming of this king who will defeat all of this other stuff that's happening you'll go back one slide, Micah. It ends with, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So two themes are revealed right here in Psalm chapter one, the study of Torah and the future promise of a messianic king. These are two major themes, the two sort of themes of Psalms that will be just sort of expanded over the course, directing the people of the importance of of sort of reflecting on the word of God and, and teaching, remembering God's faithfulness and God's promise, God's love, God's covenant, all kind of revealed in the Torah, but then also looking ahead of this future hope of this messianic kingdom that is coming. And throughout the rest of Psalms, while there are lots of different types and lots of different uses, they all kind of fit within these same two themes. The book of Psalms then is to be a prayer book of God's people as they strive to be faithful to the demands of God's Torah and as they hope and wait for the messianic king, remembering God's faithfulness, looking ahead with hope and promise. No matter what season of life we go to, that's the hope that we as Christians talk about as well, the hope of our Messiah and the kingdom of Christ fully established when he returns. So as I said, each week we're going to look at some of the different themes that are kind of built in. Uh, We're not going to look at like book one, two, three, four, five in that way, but more so of uh, some of the different types of of psalms, whether they were used in worship, whether they were used on pilgrimage, whether they were used for personal prayer or corporate prayer, and we'll see kind of different examples there. But as an introduction, this is sort of how the, the book was meant to be used. The book of Psalms is to be a prayer book of God's people. Walter Brueggemann says this, the book of Psalms is an ancient mapping of Israel's life with Yahweh a mapping that has continued through the centuries to be the primary guide for faith and worship in both the synagogue and the church. 
He says it's this sort of collection of these smaller collections and songs and poems from many sources, uh, many times and historical moments in the, in the people of Israel and in their life for different contexts that we'll take a look at. But there's two sort of, if we have two themes of how each of them fit, there's really two main genres or types that you can see. And these are generally psalms of lament and psalms of praise. And within each of them, you have an individual use and then a communal use, kind of examples of each. We know that psalms of lament express sort of this pain and confusion and anger. Things are not the way that they're supposed to be. The cry of the faithful in psalms that you hear, how long, O Lord? How long these petitions of of all that's wrong in the world and in the poet's life, focusing and giving them to God. All of these sort of horrible things. There's a, there's a, a place for lament and lamenting what is. Then draw attention to these things and ask God to do something, to, to intervene. How long, O oh Lord, will it be like this? And then there's psalms of praise, which are poems of joy and celebration of all that is good in the world, all that's good going on in, in our lives, to retell the stories of what God has done and praise God for it. We're probably more familiar with those psalms of praise that look back on God's faithfulness and celebrate all that God has done. But there's really a big chunk that you could classify as these psalms of lament. Brueggemann sort of breaks it down even further and says, you know, the psalms go, they kind of speak to each season of life. They cover every human emotion, everything that we might experience. They are not God's words to the people, but the people's words of prayer to God. And they cover every sort of human experience and season that we can think of. Brueggemann kind of classifies the life of faith as being in three sort of seasons of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. You've heard me say this before. Walter Brueggemann is a leading Old Testament scholar, and he's written several books on the Psalms. And in each of them, he sort of sets it up as we can see life that happens in three phases throughout, I mean, continually. We're not always in orientation. That is when you're feeling secure and at equilibrium, trusting God with everything, all is right in the world. I'm not sure if, have any of us been there the last five years? I don't know. (laughs) That's a fun thought experiment. (laughs) This sense of orientation and equilibrium, everything is settled and well. And then there's seasons of disorientation, when you feel like everything is just flipped upside down, dis- disillusioned, dis- disillusionment, those events that drive us to the edge of our humanness. And it's in that moment, he says, that we are particularly open to the Holy One. You've heard it said before, we're all just sort of one phone call away from our knees, right, of just the tragedy, the diagnosis, the unexpected, the pain, the accident, the betrayal, the storm, whatever it is, that disorientation. And in the Psalms, we find the voice that dares to sort of speak to those raw moments of life, the powerful and dangerous, the, the, and at times even joyful rawness, These are sort of the peak experiences of life. Usually we think of them as the valleys, but it's also when really, really good things happen, it can be disorienting as well and a joyful thing. 
And we find in the Psalms words that speak to the rawness of that human existence and that full range of emotion. And then the reorientation is that sort of that season when, when you experience that new life, when you see the good that's come out of it. Now, it's not a going back and restoring to what was exactly before everything flipped upside down, but it's the redemption piece. It's the experiencing resurrection piece. It's the new life. And you see psalms that fit in the reorientation phase of life as well. Psalms of praise and thanksgiving for what God has brought us through. It's that all things new kind of moment. Eugene Peterson says that we find an honesty in the Psalms that is gritty and no nonsense. I like that. It's not nice or pretty, but they're honest. Not all of the Psalms are nice, or nice and pretty, but they're gritty and no nonsense and honest. It's honesty to pray who we really are. It's honesty to pray what we are actually feeling, not what we think we should be praying. How many of us are hesitant to pray in front of other people because we think, I don't know what to say. It needs to be poetic and flowery and beautiful. Psalms doesn't have time for that. (laughs) Psalms is like, no, this stinks and here's why. Do something. It's an honesty. And isn't that a grace Isn't that what Christ as our high priest really provides us of being our intercessor? Of we don't have to feel like we have it all together before we go to God in prayer? That's really a grace, a point of grace. It's an honesty to pray who we actually are, not as we think we should be, how we should feel. We should get rid of the word should altogether, right? But kind of that honesty and vulnerability to go to the Lord where you are. He says this, we cannot bypass the Psalms. They are God's gift to train us in prayer that is comprehensive and honest. If it served as the prayer book of God's people, the Hebrew people, the people of Israel, that it can be a a way to train us in prayer as well in every season. Prayer that is comprehensive and honest. This really does tell us something about the nature of prayer. That even as we see that the world is not how it should be, our lives are not always how they should be, we experience things that God did not desire for us to experience and heartbreak and pain and turmoil and conflict when God created us to live at peace with him and with one another. We'll feel this tension, right, as believers, as Christians, we'll feel this tension of how things are and how we hope they will be in the promise of the return of Christ in that kingdom. We know that. We feel this tension even now. But there's something about the nature of prayer that says that we don't ignore the pain of our lives. We don't ignore all that's wrong. We can give words to that and voice to that and lament to that. But our biblical faith is always forward-looking, looking to the promise of God's future messianic kingdom. I really do think the words of Psalms can aid us in this in-between season, can give us the words in both joy and sorrow to pray, but still be forward-looking in our hope and in the promise of Christ. And so I'm going to challenge you this summer to read the Psalms 
even if they don't necessarily reflect a season that you feel like you are currently in. You can use it as a prayer to imagine someone who is in that situation, to understand them on a more deeper level, to familiarize yourself with them to the point that when you are in a season of disorientation, you know where you can go for words to pray and to lament and to cry out for God. Each week, I'll be sort of giving you a list of some of like a survey of some of the different themes that we covered. I'm not saying read all of them. Cool, if you want to, that would be awesome. (laughs) But you may choose to read them chronologically, just one and see how far you get. Or you might choose to read them more thematically based on what we've taught that Sunday. But for this week, it's pretty simple. Just read Psalms 1 and 2. Use them in prayer as we go throughout this series. Familiarize yourself that maybe we might train ourselves to draw closer to God, our ever-present God, through times of prayer. Sound good? Cool, I'm excited. We know we like to use psalms in worship, but I don't think I've ever taught on a psalm. So this is going to be a fun challenge for me too. I'm excited. (laughs) The different types. Today, just the introduction. And if you want to see the full video, I encourage you, The Bible Project, you can go and look at that. Um, I might post that as well as Psalms 1 and 2 um, to have that be your focus for this week. But let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for who you are. That throughout all of your holy scriptures, the words of those who have gone before us have been passed on. And they've been canonized in such a way that they still inform our faith and our worship and our prayer today. So God, would you just help these psalms come alive to us in a new way throughout the next couple of weeks? that we might find ourselves being drawn closer to you no matter what season we feel like we're walking in, that we might find that these psalms and those who have also prayed the words of these psalms in their own valleys, in their own peaks, in their own moments of joy, they might become companions for us in our own journeys that remind us that we are not alone, that there are others who have gone before us, So God, would you allow the book of Psalms to become a book of prayers that truly shapes our heart after you, that we may encourage each other, that we may sing them together in worship, that we may pray them over one another, and that we might remain rooted and grounded in love with you. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.